Have you ever wondered why exactly it is that things usually sound better at home than they do on stage, in auditions, or even in lessons? It's easy to chalk it up to nerves or assume that you just have to practice more or get more performance experience. And sure, those things certainly are part of the puzzle, but a lot of times that's not really the true root cause. If you've been confused by the inconsistency of your performances, I put together a free four-minute quiz called the Mental Skills Audit, which will help you pinpoint your mental strengths and weaknesses and figure out what exactly to adjust and tweak in your preparation for more consistently optimal performances. You can take the Mental Skills Audit online at bulletproofmusician.com MSA. That's MSA for Mental Skills Audit. And again, it's 100% free, and it'll take just four minutes to get your results emailed to you as a PDF. This is Noah Kageyama, and you're listening to the Bulletproof Musician Podcast. Every Sunday morning, we'll take a look at a new research-based tip or technique to help you practice more effectively or perform better under pressure. And on the first Sunday of every month, I'll have a guest from the music, sport, or research world who will share their insights on how we can all be a little more awesome in the practice room and on stage. I was going through some old home videos the other day and came across some clips of my kids jumping off the diving board at the pool for the very first time. Well, not jumping so much as cautiously inching their way to the edge of the board in a half crouch position with legs shaking and eyes wide open and going into a full crouch before tottering over the edge into the waiting arms of their swimming instructor. Of course, as they got older and more confident in their abilities, these careful tentative dives were replaced with cannonballs, belly flops, and a whole new repertoire of skills. The same sort of evolution happens in our playing, too, as our confidence grows over the years, culminating in one buttock playing, as conductor Ben Zander says in his 2008 TED Talk. But there's a tendency for us to regress on stage, to revert to a more careful and cautious version of ourselves, focused more on avoiding mistakes than playing freely. Yet, there are some folks who seem to retain their one-buttock playing abilities, even on stage, whose seeming fearlessness and risk-taking makes the performance all the more captivating and a real thrill to experience. How do they manage to do that? And is there anything we could all do to become more fearless one-buttock performers? This might sound incredibly obvious, but the first step in playing more fearlessly on stage is to practice taking risks in the practice room. I know, duh, right? The problem, though, is that it's easy to get way too preoccupied with practice that's oriented around playing perfectly and avoiding mistakes, which doesn't leave much room for experimenting and trying new things that might not work. But if our practice is centered around a careful, avoid-mistakes-at-all-costs type of playing, this is what will feel most comfortable on stage, too. And as athletes and coaches like to say, you play like you practice. That part of the equation makes total sense. But one of my students came across a study recently which suggests that it might not be enough to just take more risks in our daily practice, that there may be another factor that we need to add to the equation. And what might that be? Well, a pair of researchers recruited 153 business majors to participate in a decision-making study. Everyone was first presented with eight dilemma-type decisions to make, which involved advising a friend who was in an uncertain situation. Then they were presented with eight gamble-type situations, like 
considering a price increase for your product. And in option one, where you don't raise the price, the expected outcome would be 100% certainty that the competitors will not raise prices and that you will not lose any customers and make a profit of $400,000. Option two being where you do raise the price and the expected outcome is a 50% chance that competitors will also raise prices and you won't lose any customers, leading to a profit of $600,000 or a 50% chance that competitors will not raise prices and that you will lose customers with a profit of $220,000. So before getting any feedback on whether they chose wisely or not, the participants were asked how confident they were in their decision-making abilities. As in, if you had to answer 10 dilemma-type questions in 10 minutes, how many good decisions would you make? Then they were told that their answers would be evaluated by a computer program, quote, developed by experts to evaluate decision-making skill. This was all made up, of course, as the researchers told some of the participants that they did very well, getting six out of eight correct on the dilemmas, while others were told that they did very poorly, with a score of two out of eight correct. Likewise, with the gambles, some were told that they did very well, scoring five out of eight correct, while others were told that they did poorly, with three out of eight correct. Then the participants were presented with two more sets of dilemmas and gambles, and once again asked how confident they felt in their decision-making. The thing that researchers were interested in was whether the feedback the participants received between the two rounds of testing would affect their decision-making confidence, and whether any shift in confidence would lead to any changes in their inclination to take risks. And what did they find? Well, the feedback did have an effect on participants' decision-making self-efficacy, where positive feedback increased their decision-making confidence and negative feedback decreased their decision-making confidence. And as you can probably guess, this change in confidence did lead to a different pattern of decisions in the second round. When participants' self-efficacy increased and they had the impression that they were more effective decision-makers, they were more likely to take risks. And when they were led to believe that they were less effective decision-makers, they were more likely to go the safe route and avoid risks. So what are we to make of this? Well, first, I think it's important to keep in mind that the study didn't look at real-life decision-making, but hypothetical scenarios, with nothing at stake. That said, a 2008 study of rock climbers looked at pretty much the same sort of thing and found that the climbers who were higher in self-efficacy tended to take more risks. So it does seem that this effect transfers to real-life situations as well. Another interesting aspect of the decision-making study is that the feedback provided was completely made up and had nothing to do with the actual quality of the participants' decision-making. So this wasn't even about actual performance and efficacy, but perceived efficacy. Actually, being good at something does absolutely matter, of course, but it's important to remember that our perception of our abilities matters too. After all, it's possible to be quite good at something, yet still suffer from doubts and a lack of confidence, as in imposter syndrome. Which takes us to how all of this might apply to what we do in the practice room. For me, the big takeaway is that if our perceived risk-taking efficacy has a role in our willingness to take more risks on stage, merely taking more risks in practice may not be enough. We have to internalize and own the successes we experience too. Because even if you get into a really selective music festival or win a competition or have a great performance, if the voice in your head tells you that you just got lucky or that the judges may have made a mistake or that all the people who complimented you after your performance were just being nice, these successes may never translate into greater self-efficacy and confidence. 
where instead of feeling more effective and more confident, you're left questioning your abilities and doubting yourself instead. So how do we internalize our wins? It might sound a little simplistic, but try making it a point to take a few tiny risks every day in your practice. Like maybe going for a big shift with more trust, playing out a bit more in a fortissimo section without fear of cracking the sound, or adding a bit more vibrato here and there in a tricky section in a high position. And then make sure to write down one instance of your risk-taking. Doesn't have to have turned out perfectly or even sounded all that good. The idea is that you did something out of your comfort zone and it was a worthwhile risk, where if nothing else, you learned something from it. Not all of these risks will work out, but I think you'll be pleasantly surprised by just how many do, and how your confidence grows a tiny bit each time. You can find links to this week's study and other resources at bulletproofmusician.com blog. And if you found the episode helpful, please share it with a friend or practice buddy who you think might also enjoy experimenting with this during the coming week.